Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Now he turns to Jesus' miracles. And this section will cover chapters 8 through 9.35. Chapters 8 through 9.35 or 9.34. And this section can be subdivided into three more sections. So we have a section that goes from 8, chapter 8 through 9.34, 9.35, and it can be divided into three subsections. And each one of these subsections contains three miracles. So there will be nine miracles in all, three in each subsection. Every one of these miracles except one deals with healing of some kind. And the only one that doesn't deal with healing is when Jesus stills the storm. So here's how we're going to divide this over the next three weeks. Chapter 8, 1 through 17, that's subsection number 1. We're going to look at three miracles. Chapter 8, 18 through 9, 17, subsection number 2. We'll look at three miracles. And then finally, chapter 9, verses 18 through 35, would be the third subsection of three miracles. Okay? Now, today we're going to look at this first subsection in chapter 1, and we're going to, uh, 8 1, and we're going to see that Jesus performs three miracles, and each one is linked in some way because he heals a leper, he heals a Gentile centurion's servant, and he heals Peter's mother in law. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the common denominator is there yet, but you think about it. And by the end, you'll see what the common denominator is. Okay? So let's look at miracle number one. Look at verse one. And when he had come down from the mountain, that's where he preached the Sermon on the Mount, great multitudes followed him. So this is the setting, and this is the circumstance, and we see that the Jesus movement is beginning to gain momentum and it doesn't say a multitude, it's a mega multitude. It's a large group of people that start following him. So this is more than just initial interest. Then verse 2 says, And look, behold, Matthew wants to draw your attention to something that's unusual. That's why he uses the word behold. Behold, a leper came and worshipped him. Better translation would be a leper came and bowed down to him. It's not worshipping him as such. Now, leprosy was a deadly disease in Bible times. Today we have a disease called Hansen's disease, very similar to biblical leprosy. A person who was leprous was in time going to die because of the disease. Now, we're all going to die, but not because of leprosy. They were going to die because of leprosy, and toward the end, it would be incumbent upon them to be separate from the community because you could catch the disease and live in a leper colony. Now the Jews considered leprosy uh, a disease that made someone not only physically unclean, you never wanted to touch them, but ritually unclean, which means if you did touch them, you had to go and cleanse yourself and offer sacrifices to God. So leprosy was a serious thing and uh, in its beginning stages, if you were <clears throat> lepers, excuse me, you have to uh, uh, be separate from people, isolated. You could never be within more than six feet of somebody. And if the wind was blowing, you know, away from you toward people, you had to be at least 180 feet away from the, from the people. And whenever you 
uh, were in their vicinity, you had to cry out, Unclean! Unclean! You had to warn the people. And of course, when they saw you coming, they would move quickly away because they did not want to catch the leprosy themselves. So it was a deadly disease, and as a result, <clears throat> these people were treated as if they were dead already. Uh, some of you may have been treated, be treated by your kids that way. <clears throat> they see you old. They see you losing it. Like my kids think I'm not as smart as I used to be, you know, and they'll just look at me and, you know, like, he's losing his hearing, you know, it's like he's dead already. We can say anything we want around him. He can't hear it. But all so <clears throat> the fact that this is how this guy is being treated, the fact that he comes up where the crowd is, and bows down to Jesus is a really a bold move. Because this would not find favor with the multitudes at all. And Matthew doesn't have to say that. He assumes that his readers understand that. This was a very audacious move. So then it goes on to say in verse 2, He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now again, when you see the word Lord there, don't think of it as he's talking calling Jesus God. Okay? This guy was a Jew. He was a monotheist. He only believed in one God, the one up in heaven. <clears throat> but So he's not using the word Lord like that. He's using the word Lord like we use the word sir. Okay? So there's a tendency for our translators, instead of saying that he bowed down and said sir, they have him saying Lord and worshiping Jesus. Okay? And that's probably not really what's happening. He's just bowing down. He believes Jesus is probably at this point a great prophet or something like that. There's no way this guy thinks he's walking next to God. I mean, people just didn't think in those terms. Jewish people didn't think in those terms. So he says, Sir, uh, if you're willing, you can make me whole. So he kneels down before Jesus. Probably shows it, uh, that how desperate he is. But we want to make it, he's worshiping Jesus. He bows down and he worships him and says, Lord. The truth of the matter is, he says, sir, and he bows down because he's desperate. He's begging Jesus and he's saying, uh, if you want to, you can make me whole. So if we get that, we'll, I think we'll understand the passages better. There is a tendency among evangelical Christians to think that the gospel writers put Jesus' miracles in there to prove he was God. And that's not why the gospel writers are putting the miracles in there. Uh, the miracles don't prove Jesus was God. Uh, people in the Old Testament healed people, didn't they? Did they perform miracles? Did Elijah perform a miracle? Prophets in the Old Testament healed people, even lepers. They even raised people from the dead. No one would think they were God. They were just what? God's messenger. So don't think that that's why Matthew's putting the miracles in here to prove Jesus is God. He's doing it for a different reason that we'll see in a second. So I want you to notice two things about this. First of all, the man has confidence. Look what he says in verse 2. You can make me clean. It's pretty confident, isn't it, to make that statement. But not only is he confident, he's not presumptuous. Look what else he says in verse 2. If you are willing. So he's confident that Jesus can heal him. 
But he's not presumptuous that Jesus will heal him. He says, if you will heal me. Okay, so that's what the scene is. That's what's happening here. Now look at verse 3. Then Jesus put out his hand and what? Touched him. And when Matthew's readers, 50 years later, are reading this story, they go, He touched a leper? If you think the leper's action of going into the crowd against the law was bold and shocking, this is more shocking. Jesus responding by touching this man. He touches the untouchable. He does what is unthinkable in this situation. And look what he said to it. He touched him and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I like the Phillips translation. Phillips puts it this way. And Jesus said, of course I'm willing. Of course I'm willing. Who wouldn't be willing to do it if you had the power to do that? No, I'm not willing. Of course I'm willing. Now I'm going to make a bold statement here. Okay, You used to be making a couple bold statements, but and I can get away with it because I'm a senior. So anyway. I'm convinced that it's God's will for us to be well and for us to be healed. God's will for us to be healed. Evangelicals always say, well, you know, he, sometimes he wants us well, sometimes he wants us sick, you know. So it's always, if it's God's will, you have, I'm convinced that it's always God's will. It's, I have to really qualify this, but it's God's will that we're, that we're whole, that we're well, that we're, that we're not sick. And logic proves that. Because every time you get sick, guess where you go? You go to the doctor. Now, why would you go to the doctor if you thought it was God's will for you to be sick? That would be going against God's will. Wouldn't it? But what do you do? You go to the doctor. Or if you get a headache, you take a what? Well, I, well, I should say, well, I guess God wants me to have the headache, so I won't take the aspirin. So just our very actions show that we do believe intuitively that we're supposed to be well. <coughs> but our theology, this goes against that line of reasoning. Well, I think it is God's will. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to be healthy. Was it God's will for this man to be healthy? Yes. In the beginning, did God create sick people? No, what did he create? Healthy people. And in the end, when the kingdom comes on earth, are there going to be any sick people? No, they're all going to be healthy people. But you see, the world is in a mess. <clears throat> Sin has entered the world. That wasn't God's desire that sin would enter the world. Sin has entered the world and it's affect all of creation, including us. And as a result, we do get sick. But don't think that's God's will. His will is expressed what he did in the beginning and his will is expressed by what he did in the end. And he really does want us well. And sometimes he'll heal us in this lifetime. But the proof that he wants us healed and well is that ultimate salvation includes resurrection. And our body is resurrected and will never be sick again. So this is God's ultimate plan for us. So 
The fact that when you get sick, you might not go to the preacher and ask him to heal you. You might not go to a religious healer's meeting and ask him to heal you, but guess what you do? You do go to Dr. Kane and you say, hey, can I get a prescription for this sinus infection? That's what I do. You know why? Because I don't want to be sick, and I don't think God really wants me to be sick. I'd have to miss this class. I'd have to miss my classes at school. Is that what God wants me on my back? So he can get my attention without getting me sick. So anyway, just think about that, and you'll see how all this works out. Because as far as I can tell, there's not one case in the Bible where a person asked Jesus to heal him, and he said no. We don't think about that. We sort of just put things in our little theological categories. So look at verse 4. So Jesus, in the day of leprosy, left immediately. And Jesus said, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony. Look at this. As a testimony to them. Uh... Go show the priest what God is doing right now through his spirit. Now, why does he tell this man not to tell anybody else? Well, because the crowd already knows what happened. <laughs> and guess what? There's multitudes who have seen what's happened. And that word is going to spread like wildfire. There's no need for this guy going out and spreading the word. It's going to get around. You know who he has to show it to? He has to show it to the priest. It's to be a testimony to him. Why the priest? Well, there's a couple reasons. Old Testament required that you go see the priest. And if you want to really read something fascinating this afternoon, read Leviticus 13 and 14. Those two chapters are devoted entirely to leprosy. And what you're to do when you're a leper, and if you would get healed, and so on and so forth. But I think he also wants the man to go to the priest and show himself that he's healed as a testimony because the priest is in cahoots with the Roman government. The priest was appointed, this is hard to believe, the priests, the Jewish priests were appointed by Herod and then by the Caesars and they were doing the bidding of Rome and God wants the priest to see what, or Jesus wants the priest to see what God's doing. God's doing a new thing and God's kingdom is breaking in and Rome's days are numbered and the priest's days are numbered and he's giving these guys an opportunity to switch allegiance. So we see that don't go telling everybody. They're going to get the word fast enough. Go show the priest. So the man is healed instantly, totally cured. And, you know, when you think about it, uh, the healing of a leper uh, was equivalent to the raising of the dead. Because the man's going to die from this. He's got a death sentence. So to heal the, heal the leper is literally to raise that man from the dead. So here we have this particular situation with the healing of the leper. Okay, now let's look at this miracle number two. Remember I asked you why, what these people have in common. Okay, so keep on reading. Miracle number two, verse five. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Okay. You see a connection between the servant, or the centurion and the leper? In Jewish people's minds, what would be the connection? 
They're both unclean. The leper is ritually unclean. The centurion is ethnically unclean. The Jews considered Gentiles dogs. Unclean because they were not law keepers. And if anyone was Gentile was unclean, the soldier was unclean even more in the Jewish mind because he represented the government and he wore on his chest the emblem of his regiment and it usually had some idol figure on it, some emblem that represented one of the Roman gods or some idol. And so this man was totally unclean and here he comes and he speaks to Jesus. Now it's very interesting, there's a time lapse. See in verse 5? Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, you see that some time had lapsed, which means the word has reached, the word has gone out that, that Jesus is a healer. And so now this centurion, desperate for his servant's welfare, comes and he asks Jesus to heal him. Notice how the disease or the man's illness is described, his sickness is described. Verse 6, he's paralyzed, can't move, he's on his bed and dreadfully tormented, scared out of his wits. He is frantic. And so this is a desperate action. The desperate action of the leper, we see the desperate action of the centurion on behalf of his servant. Now, he comes and asks Jesus that. And uh, notice in verse 6, he called him Lord. Same thing that the leper called him, simply means sir. And then watch this. Jesus' response in verse 7. He said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, this phrase, I will come and heal him, can be translated as a question. And here's what, how it would sound as a question. Shall I come and heal him? Now, the pronoun I is emphasized in the Greek text. So it could it would sound like this. Shall I come and heal him? And what do you think the centurion says when Jesus asks that question? Or he says, I'll, I'll come and heal him. Look what the, how the centurion answers. Look at verse 8. The centurion answered, Sir, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. See, he says, no, no, you don't have to come. I'm not worthy of that. I'm, you, I, you're my superior. I am your subordinate in a sense. Uh, look what he says. He says, I'm not worthy to come under your roof because I'm your subordinate. If a, if a captain has a need, the general doesn't go and take care of it for him, does he? <coughs> captain comes to the general. Here's my problem, the general says. You want me to come and take care of it? Now how would the general take care of it? He just give an order and he can take care of it. So when you see that, it makes a lot of sense. So the centurion answered in verse 8, Sir, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. I'm your subordinate. You shouldn't do it personally. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Now look at the basis for making that statement. For I also, being a military man, am under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. 
and to my servant, do this. And he does it. So, the reason the man says, just speak a word, is because of the issue of authority. He said, I'm under authority, and I have been under me. Now, who was he under authority? Somebody was over him, weren't they? And ultimately, the Roman government was over him. The full weight of the Roman government was behind this man, and when he said, go, guess what people did? They went. He said, jump, and they said, how high? And he said, if I can do that, then you can do it. Just speak a word, because you too are under authority. Who's Jesus under the authority of? If, he's, if the soldier's under the authority of the Roman government, Jesus is under the authority of the kingdom of God. He's under the authority of God. If the soldier's under the authority of Caesar, Jesus is under the authority of God. So he says, just speak a word. So he realizes that, that Jesus has this authority. And he says, use your authority. And then he says this. When Jesus heard that, especially if his statement originally was a question, shall I come and do this? And he heard that. He marveled. And he said to those who followed, those people who were following, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So he marvels at the man's faith, and as a result, he says, this man opens the door for Gentiles to come into the kingdom through faith. Notice that phrase, east and west. <laughs> that means... If you say east and west, you're talking about opposites. People from all around the world, Gentiles, are going to come into the kingdom by faith, just like this man is. And they're going to recline. Uh, he describes the kingdom of God as a banquet, a reclining banquet where everyone eats and they have a great time. It's a great time of blessing. And uh, he includes the Gentiles in this. Now that would have been a shock. That statement right there was as much a shock as Jesus touching the leper. When Jesus touched the leper, everybody in the crowd went, <gasps> When Jesus said the Gentiles going to enter the kingdom of God, they all went, <gasps> But if you think that was a shock, look at the next verse. Verse 13. But the sons of the kingdom, those are the Jews, will be cast out into will be cast out into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, wait a second. Gentiles are going to get in. Not every Gentile, of course, but those by faith are going to get in. And guess what? They're going to be Jews who are excluded. Why? Because they don't see Jesus as the Messiah. They don't accept his authority over them. And they're going to be excluded. Jews thought, hey, we have Abraham as our father. It's an automatic thing. Jesus says, no, you're not saved by genealogy. You're not saved by who your parents and grandparents were. So he says, Gentiles are going to get in. Not all of them, but some by faith. And there will be some Jews who have no faith. And they will not get into the kingdom. That was a shock. Then verse 13 says, then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you believed, so be it done unto you. 
And then Matthew adds, and his servant was healed that same hour. Healing by long distance. Unprecedented in Israel's history. Healing by long distance. It's an amazing thing. And so this shows us that the kingdom of God is breaking in and God is using Jesus in a supernatural way because Jesus has been given this fullness of the Spirit and he's obedient to God. He knows God's will at every moment and God is doing great things through him. Now we come to miracle number three. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw that his wife's mother, that's Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. Well, now what's the connection between the leper, the Gentile soldier, and Peter's mother-in-law? Well, women were also considered unclean at least once a month for a period of time. And, guess what? They were women. They were on the margins. They were marginal people. Second-class people. The Jews looked at lepers as marginal people. Gentiles as marginal people. Women as marginal people. And so here he finds, he goes into Peter's house and he finds her infectious. Uh, and she has this fever. So weak that she's in bed. Can't get up. That's how, how weak she is. Okay? And then it goes on to say, and so he touched her. And the fever left her. This is the only time in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus takes the initiative to heal somebody. Now, did you hear what I just said? The only time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus takes the initiative to heal somebody, every other time someone else has to take the initiative and ask him to heal them. That should say something to us, doesn't it? You have not because you ask not. And if you, sometimes we ask, we don't have any faith. And a double-minded man will get what? He gets nothing. So usually the problems lie with us. See, so we can trust Dr. King to heal us if he gives us the prescription. And we have no doubts. But when we go to the Lord, well, we, we usually don't. Maybe we don't even go to the Lord. We go to the medicine cabinet and pull out the aspirin first. So, rather than go to the Lord. And then when we go to him, we're like, eh, I don't know if you're healing you. No wonder the Lord. Well, we just don't. He had, he, he's never, he was not going to take the initiative. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like we have to take the initiative. And I think that's the issue right here. So he touches her. Hey, to touch a person with an infection made you unclean. That was prohibited. But Jesus does. What is prohibited? He touches a leper. He rubs shoulders with a Gentile. He uh, touches a woman with a woman, first of all, and then a woman with fever. He touches her. He doesn't care about the taboos of society. He does what he believes God wants him to do. And it goes on and says, And the fever left her, in verse 15, and she arose and served him. It shows the extent of the healing. This woman is out of bed, and she is now fixing supper for that family. Now the aftermath of all of this is verse 16. When the evening had come, 
And we know from Luke's Gospel that all this took place on the Sabbath, by the way. When the evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed some who were sick. No, it says he healed all who were sick. Lots of people, multitudes come, he handles them with ease. But notice they're taking the initiative. Now look at the basis of this. The basis of the healing. He did this, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. This is a quote from Isaiah 53, 4. And this is where he's wounded for our transgression. Do you remember that passage of Scripture? And uh, <coughs> this is Matthew's explanation. Notice that. Matthew's explaining why all this took place in verse 17. Matthew says to his audience, reading it 50 years later, he said, let me tell you why all this was happening. This was happening because Jesus was fulfilling Isaiah 53, 4. And Isaiah 53, 4 speaks of the Messiah's suffering. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. And uh, Peter quotes that same verse. In his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he quotes this, and he applies this verse to sin. He says, Jesus took our iniquities. He took our suffering. He suffered for us. He died for our sins. But guess who, what Matthew applies Christ's death to? He applies it to our sicknesses. You see that? Matthew applies Christ's death to our sicknesses. So Matthew sees that on the cross, Jesus secured our salvation. We always think salvation means salvation of the soul. No, on the cross, he secured our salvation. Salvation means wholeness. He's, salvation means that we're going to be made whole. Soul and body, right? That's what ultimate salvation is. It includes wholeness. Soul and body. Now, so when Jesus dies on the cross, he did that, it says. He bore our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. But these healings took place before he died on the cross. Wait a second, what's going on here? Matthew says to his audience about 70, 80 AD, who knows when he wrote it, that, hey, all this happened because when he died on the cross, he took our sicknesses. He bore our sicknesses. He suffered for us. But these healings took place before he died on the cross. What's going on? How can Jesus heal before he dies on the cross? It says here, it's on the cross that he takes these things. Well, it's like he healed us on credit. He doesn't pay for it. He doesn't die until he dies on the cross. But guess what? He heals before he dies. We get it on credit. Or they got it on credit. Did he forgive people before he died on the cross? On what basis? He forgives sin based on his death on the cross. But he forgives them before he dies on the cross. He forgives them by credit. And then he dies and he takes care of their sickness. And he takes care of their sin. And on the cross, he defeats sickness. He conquers sickness. And he conquers sin. Now, if he dies on the cross and he breaks the back of sin, and he dies on the cross and he breaks the back of sickness, then why do we still get sick? Why do we still sin? 
we still sin and we still get sick because we're in a body <laughs> that is fallen. But I want to tell you something. When Jesus died on the cross, He broke the back of sickness and He broke the back of sin in the life of Christians. Lost people, when they die in their sin, there's no hope. When they die of sickness, that's it. Yes, we still sin. Yes, we still get sick. But guess what? When we die, that's not it. Because He's going to do what? Raise us from the dead. And we're going to stand one day in a glorified body. And we're not going to sin. And we're not going to get sick ever again. Sin and sickness has been broken. It's been conquered. Even though we still get sick and we still sin. Just like after World War II. We won the war. Dropped the bomb. We defeat. Japan, but guess what? There's still battles going on out there. <laughs> there were Japanese in caves still shooting at Americans after the war was over, wasn't there? But the war was over, but guess what? There were still problems. And he breaks the back, he defeats sin, he defeats sickness. Yes, they're still going on, but guess what? One day there's a cleanup, and one day we're all going to be resurrected, and the kingdom of God is going to come on earth, and we'll never experience sin again, and we'll never experience sickness again, because we will be made whole. We'll have a new body. And this same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will quicken this mortal body and we'll be just like him. And all of our problems will be over. But even now, we can get a foretaste of that. We can get a foretaste of that. And now, God does the healing through the church, just like he did it through Jesus. So why can't we heal everybody? Well, because we're not Jesus. <laughs> you know? Because Jesus was 100% obedient to God. He always did God's will. He was very sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And we're not! <laughs> so, But we should see one or two people healed at least in a lifetime, shouldn't we? But we're so far out of tune. I think this is what's wrong with churches today is that we're so far out of tune. Jesus had perfect faith and reliance on the Father, and we don't. We have a lot of doubt. If we could ever just take that step across the line, just for a split second, we'd be surprised what God can do through, through the church. Because Jesus was obedient, Jesus was faithful, and oftentimes we're not. But still, this is where God is supposed to be doing His healing within the body of Christ. So we see these three cases of healing, and each one shows how Jesus dealt with people on the margins and it never bothered him to rub shoulders with these people and touch them. And that's what made Jesus very special. Next week, we're going to go to subsection number two, and we're going to see three more miracles. And we're going to see, it becomes clear as we go through each one of these subsections, uh, why these miracles indeed are happening. And they have a message behind them. And the message is that uh, Satan who has people sick, Satan, who has people in bondage, his power is being broken. And when a person gets healed, they're, being, they're getting released from Satan's sickness that he's put upon them. And when people have their sins forgiven, they're no longer in bondage to sin, and in bondage to Satan, the one who started sin, tempted people to sin in the beginning. And so he's going to show how this breaks the power of Satan's back. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for a passage like this that has so much in it 
oftentimes we read over a passage. We, we read our theology into a passage. We don't allow the passage to speak. We don't think critically. We don't think creatively. We, we are fearful of saying something that might sound too far out. Oh, Lord, help us. To be people who just keep our eyes on you. People of obedience and people of faith. And allow us to learn to be vessels by which your spirit can, can minister to people all around us who are needing and hurting. In Christ's name we pray.